Well, congregation, let's turn there then to that psalm we just sang, Psalm 56. Psalm 56 is a rich and wonderful and helpful psalm of the discouragement that David faced and the believer, likewise, often faces. But again, in that facing of those things, we do not do so alone. God himself was with David and is with his church today. That is the Lord's church. So then to Psalm 56, congregation. This, of course, is the word of the living God. For the director of music to the tune of a dove on distant oaks of David, a miktam, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, eager to take my life. On no account let them escape. In your anger, O God, bring down the nations. Record my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. As far, congregation, our God nurtures us and cares for us, and in this his word encourages his church. Let's come again this evening and by faith ask for the help which he has promised to his church. Lord, now we thank you that we are consoled and comforted, yes, also challenged and corrected, but tonight, Lord, we find great assurance in the promises and the reality of those things you make to us and David himself experienced. We ask now, Lord, that we would take solace and comfort from your word. We pray for that help that you have promised and do regularly provide to us by the Spirit's work, that we would learn what you have here for us. O Lord, strengthen your church and buttress our faith, we pray tonight, asking in Jesus' name, amen. So dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Psalm 56 before us, we can rightly say today is the day of hope. This is what a grieved David says in this psalm. And why? God. David needs mercy. Yet it is the day of hope. Why? God. He is, David, and the church is attacked. Yet this is the day of hope. Why? God. 
The list of enemies to be confronted by the church is incredibly long. And the challenge of the obedience that God calls us to in the Christian faith is exceedingly difficult. And yet, it is the day of hope. Why? God. Now, having now heard that in repetition four times, you're perhaps beginning to think, well, the pastor is using a rhetorical tool. He is preaching in such a way that we might remember this phrase, hope, why, God. Well, that's true. It is a rhetorical tool, but it is a rhetorical tool that erupts from the psalm. This is the structure of this psalm. Hope. Why? God. Did you perhaps notice that his name, God's name, is spoken of in this psalm a multitude of times, depending on how you count it, at least 22 times in these 13 verses. And here is, again, what the church today must boldly say. People of God, there is hope because our God is for us. But this must be professed by those who have been through real troubles. Is that you? So that we can say, hope? Why? God We learn from this word to praise God in distresses because God is for us. We learn from this word to praise God in distresses because God is for us. Well, then notice in the four points, we're going to, as always, try to pay very careful attention to the verses of the psalm itself. So the first three verses bring us this. There is fear. But we trust him. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the man who has experienced so much of the power of the intervention of God in ways that we would spend a lot of time recounting. Here in this psalm, this same David opens the floodgate of emotions. In these first three verses, we see that in terms of his distress. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. And he goes on and he goes on and he says, these are hard, pressing times for me. Now, we need to rest here for a moment so that we don't leap ahead to verse 4 and say, well, look, verse 4, David is saying that it's, it's fine, everything is great. Now, there's something coming after verse 4, and we're going to find a great interest and value, that sort of transition. But, beloved, we need first to settle and rest here in these first three verses. Because sometimes Christians realize we don't live in a bubble. That is to say, sometimes life is really hard and difficult. David, in the historical situation of the psalm, sees no other reality than that he is either captured or, depending on how you interpret the psalm, about to be captured. He is facing the reality of imprisonment to to hostile forces. Whether it's the Philistines now, or if you look at Psalm 57, Saul coming to get him, in one way or another, he is a man with a target. The situation with him personally, the situation with the nation, which hopes of the nation rest in certain ways on his shoulders, 
seem bleak and dire. Now, we don't want to overly extrapolate and say about our lives, so it is always with us, or in in exactly similar ways, so it is sometimes with us, but it is in maybe not as exacting similar ways. It is true that we face difficulties. We are, according to verse 3, sometimes afraid. But notice it here, and again why we mentioned what Paul says in Romans 15. In the face of this fear, David chooses to trust God. Dearly beloved, faith grants hope, and hope sees what God can do when he decides to act. And so that faith hopes is called trust. It's called trust. And so I want us to notice again this evening, it's why we read from Romans 15, some of the connections to that passage that we recited, those first verses of Romans 15. I say it again, Psalm 56 is part of Paul's, quote, whatever things were written before, were written for our learning. Why were those things of before written for our learning? Because we need to know who God is. We need to be able to say, and facing the things that we face, but God. The reality of our life as Christians is clearly told to us in this psalm, and there are times when it feels like the church, when it feels like we as individual Christians, are being, verse 2, hounded, pursued. If I can put it out a little bit differently, we... Perhaps, if we think about the Garden of Eden and the time before the fall, sometimes we think with fondness of Adam walking in the cool of the garden with God and the the beauties of those situations and what it must have been like and, and what it honestly will be like in glory for us. And we think in fondness about those things, but often really what happens to the Christian is more like the the death match in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Lord Jesus Christ himself faced. Well, people of God, if David had enemies all around him, which surely he did, how much more the greater king, Jesus Christ, and now the church. Yet, hope. Why? God. So secondly, I will not fear the real enemies around me. Verses 4 through 7. Notice this interesting transition in that section, verses 4 through 7. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Now, pause there a moment because we're going to go on to verse 5 in a little bit. But notice that transition from verse 3. We might say, well... How do I understand this? It seems like a contradiction. Verse 3, when I'm afraid. Verse 4, I will not fear. And unless we think this is a grammatical thing, both of those words come from the same Hebrew root word, which word we get in the English, fear, afraid. It's the same Hebrew root word. So what's going on here? And I think this is of great actually great encouragement to the Christian. 
Because on the one hand, we can say that it is not inappropriate for the Christian to be afraid. That's not inappropriate. That is not unbiblical. But what do we do when we are afraid? How do we respond to it? We say, verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. I won't fear because God is with us. And specifically, now, note this because we're going to come back to it, the Word of God. We need to see these profound truths revealed here in this text. David talks significantly about the Word of God in this psalm. Here, verse 4 is the first time he mentions it. We're going to come back to it significantly in verse 10. But he says, now listen, this is my confidence and my solace in the face of these things I am encountering. God and His Word. It is the Word of God that causes David, when he fears... To not be afraid. Remember Romans 15.4. Whatever things were written before were written for our instruction. Dearly beloved, David's answer to his own fear, David's answer to his own fear, is to remember what God has said. And that remembered, recited, regurgitated word directs David to say this is a day of hope. The Word does. Why? God. God's Word. And that in the face of real trials. We notice this significantly here in the psalm, don't we? David, again, is the man with a target on his back. The enemy is seeking him out. They misquote him like false witnesses do. They form a pretense. They use surveillance tactics to trap him. And all the actions, as we think about what's happening to David here, the same actions which were used against our Lord Jesus Christ. When he is about to be arrested and falsely tried and unjustly convicted and brought to the cross, the same tactics are used against The greater David, the greater and more perfect king, do we see it, beloved? And so we ought not be surprised that such and similar things will come against the church and against Christians. Not be surprised. So that we say again to ourselves, Oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how I love God's word. Let's put this slightly differently. If I can turn it for a moment, just in the, looking at the negative side of things, we Christians know that without God's Word, we would wither and die. When we face those trials, when we are greatly discouraged, when it seems like the enemy is launching his assaults against us and we seem to be losing in the battle, what do we run to? We run to the Word of God. But if we had not the Word of God to to hold and to read, or maybe we don't have it memorized to recite and to remember, we will be lost, we will wither, we will die. What can flesh do to the church? What can flesh do to the Christian You see, Satan can use all sorts of means to terrify you. David says, in the midst of those, I will praise his word. Because that word is the sword of the spirit which we use, which is needed, and we use against the enemies of our souls. 
we think of Ephesians 6, don't we? Realizing that of all of the weapons of the armies of the world, none of those weapons will be useful against spiritual forces of darkness in high places. We need the word. We need the battlements of God to be able to fight. There are two interesting things to note here, and then we'll move on. Two errors that have regularly been made in the history of the church, which we need to guard against. The first error goes something like this. Well, David had such enemies, and maybe if we extend it, the early church had those kinds of enemies, but we're living in a modern and now a postmodern era. We don't have those kinds of enemies. Now, I'm just not just reciting something, but again and again in the history of the church, Christians have had that position. They have come to that erroneous, wrong-headed idea that we don't have those kinds of spiritual enemies right now. That's wrong. That's deadly wrong. So we need to avoid that error and say, yes, there are enemies assaulting Christians and the church in our day. But there's an error on the other side of it, which also we need to avoid, and it goes like this. We're so weak to those enemies of ours. We have so little power against those enemies of ours. We're going to be overwhelmed so quickly and so easily against those enemies of ours. Beloved, that also is a deadly error the church has made again and again and again in the history of the church. And we must say no. God, through His Word, can strengthen us. You see, people of God, rather we know the church. Christians have such enemies. And churches are falling to the demands of these enemies to do church and to be church according to acceptable new cultural patterns. And we say no to those things. We say we need the Word. And our life, individually, personally, family-wise, and as a congregation, will be structured according to God's Word. And in, that, and in that conviction do we begin to find our safety. I want you to notice something before we move on. I'm going to come back to it just briefly at our last point, but I want to mention it here, just to kind of drop it out before us. We said already that in verses 1 through 3, David is expressing his emotion and his He is distraught, and then in verse 4, he seems to to rebound with spiritual energy. He seems to come again to the realization that, that God is strong and for him, and in his word he will praise. And sometimes we think when we say something like that or are uh, come to a conviction like that, that after that nothing will touch us. Oh, I've arrived at the mountaintop. But then look at verse 5. And he's right back into the pit, as it were. Isn't that so reminiscent and regular of our Christian experience, beloved? So that he comes thirdly to say, my tears are in the bottle of the God who is for me. Verses 8 to 9. Record my lament. List my tears. And our NIV and a few others say on your scroll. I think it's probably better to translate as we see in our footnote. Put my tears into your wineskin or even better into your bottle. Because then he says it again in a different way just after that. Are they not? A record, or are they not in your record? That is to say, in a wonderfully illustrious way, our tears are both by God 
preserved in a bottle, but also then written down. Now, why tears? I wonder if you've come in your Christian experience to have a conviction as to already be able to answer that question. Why tears in the Christian life? Our brother from Word and Deed, Dave, uh, said this morning to us that there is a flood of wrong-headed teaching taking over both in the African continent and in South America and in many other places of a, quote, health and wealth teaching, right? Well, in a health and wealth, which is an erroneous, wrong-headed teaching, there is no room for tears, no place for weeping and sorrow, because everything is supposed to be great and only getting greater. But that's not what we discover in the Word of God, is it? What we see here is something different. My lament, my, my lament, I, 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 need, I need you to hold my tears because I'm pouring out these tears We see here something of the record of the sufferings of the Christian. But that in a very particular way, I think, here, beloved. The record of the sufferings of the Christian poured out in the weeping of prayers. I think that's exactly what David is here reflecting on. The weeping of prayers. It's a marvelous image. It's a beautiful, glorious way to to portray the perfect kindness of our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, who has a bottle in which He collects our weepings, cryings of prayer, our tears of prayer. Is it just us? Or do we realize Jesus, standing at the tomb of Lazarus, when he sees the effect sin has and that sin causes death, what does Jesus do by way of response? He weeps. Dearly beloved, this is not faithless weeping. For us it is petition out of pathos. That is, praying with feeling, with emotion, Because that's who we are as those created in God's image. And verse 9, as we cry out to Him emotionfully or with a great emotion, praying, our enemies, they run. Why? God. Many have said, and I can't name a particular author who said this, but I know many in the history of the church have said this, that the church is at its most powerful when we are praying. When Christians are on their knees, Satan is trembling. And here we see it in verse 9. Record my tears, my laments on your scroll, then my enemies will turn back when I, what? Verse 9, call for help. When I cry out to God. Oh, beloved, this is where we are strong. This is where we find that great help that we need. This is where simple faith lives. Believers, have you wept in prayer before? Have you ever been so grieved by your own personal sin? Or because you see the effects of the sin of others, personally or generally, 
that you respond in prayer with such emotion that tears begin. So distraught about the path that a loved one is on that you, you seek God's intervention for them with cries and tears. Because we know something of the reality of the, the, the heinous horror of sin and the great terror of hell that we don't want someone to fall into those things. We cry out to God. Or about our own situation of sin, we've grieved God yet again the 1,001th time. We cry out with tears to God. Do we know what it means to pray that way? But then do we know that God on His throne is as with a bottle and writing on a scroll collecting those prayers. This is a bottle of sovereignty. This is a book recording His providences. So that we can say, and rightly so out of Scripture, that He in His sovereign administration of every trial, of all conflicts and every disappointment, He is aware of those. God knows. He knows what you've been through. People of God, beloved, God sees from His throne. He sees every proton and neutron interacting. He directs the wind and the waves, kings and continents. As it pleases Him for us. So there is not for the believer a helpless hand-wringing, but a faithful, hope-filled praying. Even with tears, knowing, verse 9, that God is for us. Oh, beloved, if we can rightly stop here and say it again, Let this be for us a rich encouragement to bring all of our troubles and all of our sorrows and all of our concerns and yes, our fears to God. And He will unburden us with those things, of those things. Fourth, we praise His Word which tells of His deliverance. I want you to notice something very carefully here. Verse 10, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We'll pick up the rest of it in a moment. But I want you to notice something here, beloved. If I can say it in sort of an American way, what we see here is the doubling down of the significance of the word of God to David. What he said once in verse 4 And notice again the power and the import and the significance of repetition. What he said once in verse 4, he says now twice in verse 10. He says, he praises the word of God and he says it twice. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. But there's something even more significant here. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, David here speaks of God in two different ways or using two different titles and names of God. We have this of great significance. That in terms of both God, Elohim, and His being, and His covenant name and promises, Yahweh, the Lord, in both of those ways are these things connected to God's Word. And we perhaps immediately, and rightly so, think of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God, and the Word was God. It's not just a New Testament reality to see these things. Dearly beloved, the Holy Spirit directs David to write of both God's essential being, Elohim, God, and of His covenant name and promises, Yahweh, the Lord. This God in both essence and activity is, verses 12 and 13, the God who saves. David knows there is deliverance from the God who is vitally connected to His Word so that we could easily and rightly say, and the Word was God. We see the richness of such a statement being incredibly valuable to us. Because then he goes on, verses 12 and 13, and he says, in terms of the Word, I am a man under vows to you, O God. And because of your Word and your promises and your work for me from your Word, I will offer my thank offerings to you. I will present my life to you, as Paul will put it in Romans chapter 12. Why? Exactly why Paul says that in Romans chapter 12, because all of Romans 1 through 11 is what David says in verse 13, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Oh, beloved, it is a beautiful and a glorious thing to see this, the glorious work of God and His salvation for us, not occurring in a vacuum of perfection that is in the world, but to see the beauties and the glories of God's delivering work for us in the context of the trials, the sufferings, the wretchedness of this world, we find then in the psalm hope. Why? God, people of God, this psalm also tells us of our experience of protection and deliverance by the God who so loved us that He gave His only Son for us. And indeed, there is for us hope because of God. Amen. Lord, now we bow before You this evening knowing that You and the richness and the kindness of Your nature and your actions, both from your essence and being and because of the ways that you work out all of your promises, we are richly blessed. And that in the midst of trials and the sad and hard things of this life. We pray, Lord, then, that we would be encouraged to see another believer many centuries before we ourselves going through the same struggles and finding rich hope because of you, our God, Bless and strengthen your church, we pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation, let's sing something of that tonight in the well-known number 84, God is our refuge and strength. Our doxology then afterward will be 493. Let's stand at 84 and let's sing. <clears throat>